There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To the sinner's ear, there are few more precious words in scriptures than these, amen? Only those who have encountered holy and righteous law of God and have cried out with Paul, O wretched man that I am, find the greatest comfort and the truth that they are now freed from the condemnation of the law through faith in Jesus. We're reminded in the scriptures that, that our Lord, our Savior, calls to all to come to him, all who are or all who labor and are heavy laden. He says, I will give you rest. Christ gives us rest from our, our weary souls, which are beaten down by the burden of sin. And it is on this basis of this truth that we cry out with the saints and angels of heaven, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God. It's because of Christ's redemptive work on the cross that not only have we been forgiven of all of our sin, but we've been resurrected. Resurrected to walk in newness of life. As we have studied in the book of Romans, God's amazing grace that saves us also is the amazing grace that transforms us. The grace that wipes away our sin does not become a license for sin. The gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of faith alone does not promote sin, but it promotes righteousness. God's grace serves as the grounds by which we are able now to submit to God's righteousness. And this leads to what we call sanctification. That is holiness, godliness, being conformed to the image of Christ. But if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that though you've been freed from the condemnation of sin, you, you still sin. You still battle. You feel the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Some of you feel the weight of that burden. Some of you feel the weight of your sin. It's it, it such a degree that you believe that's too much that you would never gain victory over your sin. This morning, we're reminded for those who are in Christ, those whose lives have been united to Him through faith, we've been born again. Not only have we been freed from the penalty of sin, but we've been freed from the power of sin. We've been freed from the power of sin so as not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies any longer, so that we do not have to obey its passions. And this is really what Paul's been getting after since we embarked upon uh, Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 are really kind of a package deal. Uh, 5 and 6 have been uh, expounding for us the great truths of the gospel of being in Christ, that in Him we have been justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then chapter 6, he's He's explained to us that though we have died with Christ in baptism, we've been raised to walk in newness of life. The issue of the law came up in, in Romans chapter 7. Because those who oppose the gospel of, uh, of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, they often 
say, well, that will not lead to righteousness. That'll just lead to a license of sin. You've got to have rules. You've got to have a law. You've got to have ritual. You've got to do works in order to be made righteous. That gospel will not do that. Apostle Paul turns to the law and he says, you who say righteousness comes through works of the law, let me tell you, have you not listened to the law? The law says you are a man or woman condemned. In fact, your attempts at even trying to keep the law actually cause you to be more of a sinner. And if you think you have found righteousness through works of the law, you are deceived. Such a path will lead to misery and great depression because you will not find relief if you listen to the works of the law. But Paul says that Christ has done something for us. This is not something in and of ourselves, but Christ has accomplished something for us. And through faith, through confessing him as our Lord and giving our lives to him, we have died somehow. We have died with him on the cross and we've been raised with him in glory. So that we may walk, he says in Romans chapter 6 verse 4, in newness of life. How is that possible? How is that possible? How is it that I could have been crucified with Christ 2,000 years ago and been raised with him? How is that possible? Well, Paul explains for us in Romans 5, 5 that this is possible because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The gospel of Lord Jesus Christ is that those who have put their faith in Christ have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. This Holy Spirit works in our lives so that we may walk in newness of life, that we may find victory over our sin because we're no longer our own. We've been bought with a price. And this is Paul's point in Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17, but Paul turns the corner. He says, well, if it's not works of the law that promotes righteousness, well, what is it? He's been kind of giving us hints throughout. Chapter 7, verse 6, we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Chapter 8 is all about the new life in the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit has done for us. And so I invite you to follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 1 and we'll go down to verse 17. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. 
if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, the sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In order for you and I, brothers and sisters, to live in victory over sin, to put to death the deeds of the body, we must understand how the Holy Spirit has freed us from sin and death. And therefore, this morning, I want us to discover five ways in which the Holy Spirit has brought liberation from sin so that you and I may walk in righteousness. Christians, that is our desire, right? We hate our sin. We know it so well. In fact, maybe if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you realize that it seems like the longer I'm a Christian, the more I feel like I'm a sinner. The more I find out the depths of my wickedness because I, I hear the word now. I listen to what it says about me. And sometimes we, we see the things in our life, we, we see the battles, the struggles, and we, we wonder, am I ever going to get victory? Am I ever going to get an upper hand over this sin that seems to be clamping to my soul so tightly? Well, what we see in this passage is that we do have victory. The Spirit of the living God dwells in us. And I want us to see what the Spirit has done in our lives through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone that transforms everything. And the more we understand these truths, we can accomplish what Paul says in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's not what we want to do. But if you, by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. How do we get to that? How do I live according to the Spirit? Well, we better know what the Spirit's done in our life. And first of all, what we see here in verses 1 through 3 is that the Spirit has liberated us from the penalty of sin. The Spirit has liberated you and I from the penalty of our sin. We've already touched on this glorious truth as I introduced this passage that, that we're no longer under condemnation. The law's judgment has already been satisfied in Christ and therefore will not be applied to you and I. But in verse 2, Paul explains how is that possible? How is it possible that just through my belief, my trust, my turning from my way of living to turning to Christ? All my sins have been wiped away. How is that 
possible. In verse 2, Paul explains how that's possible. You see that for? He's explaining. For the law of the Spirit of life, that's the Holy Spirit, has set you free, has liberated you, he says, in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul here is unpacking Romans chapter 6, where we had died to sin, he says, in Christ, and we've been freed from sin. Paul says that this has happened because we have found our lives united with him. In a very real sense, Christ's life has encompassed us. We are hidden in Christ, and we are knit to him so tightly that our identity is fully found in him. And therefore, the death he died, we died, and the life he lived, we live. He states that, but how does that work? What's the binding mechanism? Paul says the agent by which we have been united by Christ is the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. That is what he's getting after. Our union with Christ is by the agency of the Holy Spirit. And so God, the Holy Spirit, has taken residence in our hearts and has bounded our lives with him. This is why he says in verses 9 and 10, you, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. But he has this rhetorical question. In fact, if the Spirit, in fact, dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not what? Belong to him. Do you understand this, believer? That if you are truly a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. But if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. That's what he's saying. Every Christian has God's Spirit dwelling in them. That is the means by which you have died and been raised with Christ. That is how you belong to him. Because his spirit has taken residency in your heart. Therefore, through the indwelling of the spirit, our life has been hidden with Christ. And we have our hearts knit with his so that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? On the basis of our new life in Christ, his work on the cross is now credited to our account. That's what Paul wants us to see. Because the Holy Spirit has dwelled in us, has given us a new heart, has taken out that hard heart of stone that would not submit to God, did not love God, did not want to please God, did not want to live for the Lord, but has given us a new heart. That transformation has occurred, but the basis of our forgiveness has, has taken place in the cross. We died with him in a real sense because now our heart, I mean, can you separate yourself from your heart? When we think of our body, soul, and mind, you, it's like, I can't like compartmentalize that. It's all like together. Well, now the Holy Spirit dwells in you and, and there's not any means by which you can conceptually kind of separate yourself. So when that means you have truly been hidden with Christ, you were crucified with him on the cross. Look at verse 3. I love this. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Who accomplished your salvation? God did it, he says. God did what the law could not do. That is, that flies in the face of any system of religion that says you can work your way to heaven. It could not do it, he says. 
Works righteousness does not work. And if you go that route, you're saying, God, I don't want your help. I don't want what only you could do. And what you'll find is you'll die in your sins. Because your works righteousness cannot accomplish anything. And so he says, God has done this. And, and, he, and he says, he's done what the law could not do. What, what couldn't the law do? It couldn't produce righteousness, right? All the law does is say, here's the holy, righteous, perfect standard. And if you listen to the law, you know, I don't measure up. I mean, just take the most benign sins of the law. Do not lie. Do not bear false testimony. Do you lie? Do you exaggerate? Do you make use of hyperbole a lot to, to make yourself look good and others not? Well, you're a liar, the law says. And let's just assume that we tell one lie a day, which would probably be generous. If you got 365 lies on 2017, and just multiply that by how many years you lived. And we're just being gracious, right? That's that's being gracious towards me, too. So people say, oh, I don't, I, you know, I, I might tell a, a white lie every now and then. No, you and I are liars. We're liars. Jesus says, if you've looked upon a, another person with lust, you've, you've committed adultery of the heart. It doesn't matter if you've actually slept with that person. It's whether you lusted after them. So not only we're liars, but we're adulterers. So do you listen to the law? That's all it says. It doesn't solve the problem, though. Okay, I'm a liar. Now what? I can't go back and change anything. I can't. It doesn't transform me. It's just words written on stone, Paul says. They're a standard that I possibly could never attain. All the law can do is condemn Notice he says it's weakened by the flesh. The problem's not with the law, though. We saw that when we were in Romans chapter 7. The law is holy, good, and righteous, right? The problem's not with the law. The problem's with me. The problem is, is when I come in contact with the law, sin inside me gets aroused. And I don't like what the law has to say about me. And I either put the deafers on, and I just say it doesn't say it as badly as I think it, as it claims to say it, and I'm a good... I'm a good guy, and the Lord's going to save me on that day. Or I just flat out hate God, and I just let everybody know it, and I pursue sin all the more. Both of them reject God. But what Paul says here is that God has done what the law could not do for you. What your works righteousness could never do, God did. So what did God do? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. The only solution to your sin and mine was that it be condemned. And so if you do not go through Christ, through faith alone, by grace alone. You do not have sin condemned. It's awaiting. Your sin is awaiting condemnation. But for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, verse 1, there is now no condemnation. 
That is the only means, and that is the great truth of the gospel. God has accomplished our salvation. He condemned sin in the flesh. In whose flesh? In Christ's flesh. Christ bore the sin once and for all, for all who would believe. He's done what you and I could not do. Another passage which describes this great truth is 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, For our sake, God made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What has occurred on the cross? A great exchange has occurred on the cross. All my sin and all my guilt was placed upon Christ. All of it. And God condemned my sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ. He condemned your sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ if you have trusted Jesus. So that he may take his righteousness and accredit it to your life. Because now you've taken off the old man, the old sin, and now you have put on the righteousness of Christ. And you wear a blood-dipped robe that says, Jesus Christ has bought me, and it makes you white as snow. And that is the only means by which sinners are made right, but it is a glorious means, is it not? Because we know what the law said about us, and we know goodness if this was up to me that ship has sunk long ago what Christ has done what I could not do however not only has he liberated us from the penalty of sin not only are we not now condemned for our unrighteousness but we've also been liberated from the power of sin you see this in verse 4 why did Christ die yes to forgive us but we see a purpose statement here in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The reason God sent His Son to condemn sin in the flesh was it so that you and I might fulfill the law. This is where the transformation of life comes into play. We know that's what he's talking about because he's talking about how we now change how we live. We don't walk according to the flesh anymore. Now we walk according to the Spirit. And this Spirit work in our lives now by accepting the fact that I'm a sinner and trusting in Christ alone, the work that he will do in us actually fulfills the law. Here's the irony that Paul is getting at with his gospel. He's, he's often preaching this in Jewish circles where people said, no, 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 you must keep the law in order to be righteous. And he says, no, you try that route, you'll die. Trust Jesus alone. They say, well, that, won't that just promote sin? That won't address sin and unrighteousness? He goes, actually, it will because there's something called the Holy Spirit who dwells in them and will transform their life and he'll give them a new heart that they will now walk and fulfill the, the, the righteous commandments of the law. That's what he's saying. That's why Christ died. 
This goes against the silly notion that was popular in the mid-80s, that you can have Christ as your Savior, not as your Lord. Paul knows nothing of such nonsense. You either have the Spirit working in you or you don't. There will be a change. You've been bought, and He bought you with a purpose, and what Christ wills to do, He will accomplish. He will do that. So the gospel of grace doesn't lead to more sin and disobedience, but actually it leads to a changed life. And the difference for Christians, Paul says, is that we live or we, we walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. And this has massive implications for us as Christians. Chapter 7, which was so depressing, is him describing the inability of us walking according to the flesh to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. It's impossible. But these things have changed. No longer are we in the flesh, he says. Uh, uh, Romans chapter 5, no longer are we in Adam. No longer are we under the reign of sin and death. No, we walk according to the Spirit. We are now in Christ. We now are under the reign of life and peace. We're under the reign of grace. And it is on this basis that we're now able to submit to God and please Him. And I want us to see that. How is that possible? How is it possible that now as a converted believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I now can fulfill the righteous requirement of the law by the Spirit? Well, he tells us, beginning in verses 5 through 8, that the Spirit has, first of all, given us a, liberated us from a corrupt mind. It's liberated us from a corrupt mind. To understand what Paul is saying here in verses 5 through 8, we need to keep in mind that unbelievers are those in the flesh. That's, that's what he's talking about. You're no longer in the flesh. That is living as an unbeliever. You're in the Spirit. So if you just want to kind of use those terms interchangeable, flesh is unregenerate, in Adam, under sin, an unbeliever. In Christ, in the Spirit, means Christian, forgiven. Okay? And he goes on, he says, that we bear the mark of genuine conversion. We have the Spirit. But notice he, he turns his attention to the unbeliever first. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, what? They set their mind on the things of the flesh. He has really four things to say about them. Number one, they, they set their minds on the things of the flesh, verse 5. And he further explains what that means. That is death, verse 6. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But third, he goes on and he says, what does death look like? Well, verse 7. The mindset of the flesh is hostility to God. The mindset of the flesh is basically saying, I'm going to take you on. You will not be Lord of my life. You will not be the king of me. And Paul says, that's hostility towards God. That's death. And then fourthly, he says that the person in the flesh, the unbeliever, is unable, do you see that? To submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those in the flesh cannot please God. You might be here today and you, you aren't a Christian. This is not to say that you are the worst person on the planet. This is not to say that we as sinners are as bad as we could be. 
this is what the scripture says. You may think you are living a life pleasing to God, and maybe by human standards you are a moral and upright person. But if you are in the flesh, if you have not put your trust in Christ alone for your salvation, you cannot please God. You are in a very dangerous place. You are his enemy. You are in hostility with God. By virtue of just saying, I don't believe what you say about me is true. I think I'm better than that. And I just want to tell you, brothers and sisters, you don't want to test that notion. In fact, I, I'm pretty con confident that your conscience is convicting you right now and you know that's not true. You know that what the scripture says about you is true and that you need a savior. And understand this. And even us as Christians, we need to understand the world they cannot please God. This is what Paul meant in Romans 3 when we are in the depths of sin. There's no one righteous, no one good, no one, no one seeks for God. This is what he means by that. Paul describes the works of the flesh a little bit more in detail in Galatians chapter 5. You can turn there or you can just listen. But the works of the flesh, they're evident, Paul says. Galatians 5, 19, he, he begins, he says these, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is why those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is the unbeliever category. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. So let me ask you, do you walk according to the flesh? Do you live according to the flesh? Do you satisfy your passions of your flesh? You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because you show yourself to be an unbeliever. If this is what characterizes your life. But if you have put your faith in Christ, you've been given a new mindset, Paul says. That's not how you think anymore. That's not your desires anymore. You have the mindset of the Spirit. That means you now have life. And so everything that Paul said here in Romans 5 through 8 about the mindset of the flesh is the opposite for you. Your mindset isn't the flesh, your mindset is the spirit. Your mindset isn't set on death, you're set on life. You're not in hostility toward God, you're at peace with Him. You're not unable to submit to God's law, you love God's law. You're not forbidden from pleasing Him, you can please Him. And he is pleased with you. Everything changes. Because now, the Spirit has renewed our corrupt mind. 
That of the flesh is who we were. Maybe it didn't make itself as manifested in all those lists of sins, but it made itself manifested. But that has begun to change in you if you are a believer. So what is the mindset of the Spirit? It's now loving God and the things of God. You, you find joy in those things. You long for them. You, you, you strive after them. Back in Galatians 5, Paul contrasts now the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He says, against such things there is no law. What's he saying? You don't need now the law spoken to you because the law has been written on your heart. Now your heart's been transformed, and you love God, and you love neighbor, and it manifests itself not in selfishness and sexual immorality and, and covetousness and dissensions and jealousy and rage. That's what the world looks like, does it not? But that doesn't characterize the people of God anymore because they've been overcome by love. And the love of God has been poured in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, and that manifests itself in us. And so as we now love God, and that love compels us now to love our neighbor, we actually fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Every law, you take the Ten Commandments, the first half, love God, the second half, love neighbor. If you go through and you get into the details, you ever looked at the law like, do not boil a goat in its mother's milk? I don't know about you, I've just never been tempted in that way. <laughs> What's that all about? Some pagan idolatrous means of, 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 of communing with the divine? And you don't do that. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Or all these admonitions about how to build a fence around your, your roof? Well, why, why is that a big deal? Because you love your neighbor and you don't want them to fall off and die. Oh, when we understand the principle of love and it's been poured into our hearts, how that transcends the law. Transcends it. And yes, that means I will not lie. That will mean I will not commit adultery. I will not murder. I will not bear false witness. I will not covet. I turn from those things. I, I now am, am able not to let that rule over my, my life. Our mindset has now been changed because our old sinful passions were crucified with Christ. And this is why you hate the sin you once loved, right? Or even as a Christian, as you've grown and you've understood more about God's righteous character and you've said, oh, well, that's not becoming of the Lord. I, I don't want that. Even in the struggle, it, it doesn't always happen that nicely and cleanly, does it? But what happens over time? You're won over. And you grow in your affections more and more. That's the Holy Spirit working in your life. Not only has the Spirit liberated, liberated us from a corrupt mind, but he's liberated us from a corrupt body. Yes, even though my desires have changed, it's like my body, would you catch up with this? Right? I feel the burden of the flesh, do you not? And sin wells up in you, and you're like, I thought that guy crucified. Where did that desire come from? Where did that passion and anger come from? Lord, why do I still struggle with this? And Paul's not living in some idealistic uh, 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 world. He understands we are still in the flesh. 
And God is changing us from the inside out. The Holy Spirit is the first fruits of our redemption. Our first thing he's done, he's changed our desires, and now we long for resurrection. We long for that day. Nevertheless, the Spirit guarantees that liberation. Look in verses 9 through 11. Paul is highlighting the contrast of our old life apart from Christ with the new life in the Spirit. And he says to belong to Christ means that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. However, notice what he says in verse 10. Although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit, big S, is life because of righteousness. He says, yes, all these glorious truths are true. And even though the body is dead, the Spirit is life that lives in you. So what does this mean? Paul acknowledges that we're still in the flesh, and that means one day we're all going to die. One day we will be buried six feet under unless Jesus returns. And our flesh will turn to dust. Why? Because in a real sense, I'm, I'm still under this sinful world. It means you and I are going to get sick. Half our church is sick. We're going to struggle with sin. We're going to stumble in many ways. Yet, even though that is what we encounter, the Spirit, he says, is life in us. Because of righteousness. What, what does he mean there? Righteousness, as we saw many months ago, righteousness is God's saving act of redemption in Christ. Where God took care of sin and upheld his justice and, and, and lavished us with his mercy. What Christ has done through the cross, his death and resurrection, is life in us. In other words, this is what Paul's getting after. The Holy Spirit who dwells in us is our guarantee that this body will be raised. See that in verse 11? If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, meaning if you are a Christian, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's good news, isn't it? So now, not only has my mindset been changed, my desires and affections have been changed, but because of that reality, I have a promise that this body will one day be changed. And now I'm living for that. That is the hope of Christianity, brothers and sisters. We give hope to the world that you can be resurrected from the dead. You can be resurrected. And when we hear testimonies on Sunday morning, we're hearing testimonies of the first fruits of the resurrection. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but I've been made alive in Christ. And that same testimony will be true of us in glory when we look back and we say, our bodies were dead in sin, but the Spirit made us alive. And just as Christ was physically buried in the ground and physically raised, so we will be physically raised on that last day. That's the work of the Spirit that will accomplish the good work that Christ has begun in us. He's working in us, and He's doing that through His Spirit. That's why He told the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. 
I do not leave you as orphans. If I go, I send another, the helper, the comforter, the spirit who will lead you in all truth and he will convict you of sin and righteousness. And that spirit has worked in your life. And if you want to know if you have the Holy Spirit, you can look and you can see how my desires are of the things of God. And if you confess Jesus as Christ and you trust in him alone and you love him, as imperfect as that love may be, you love him, that is only the work of the spirit working in you. Because the one who's of the mind of the flesh cannot please God. Does not love God. Is hostile to him. So the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise us from the dead and ultimately will be freed from sin's tyranny. And it's on this basis of this gospel, of these gospel truths that we are to live in the Spirit. This is what now motivates us. So you want to get the, uh, uh, hit the ground running. You want uh, uh, you know, where the, the tire hits the road, okay? What does this mean in your life now? All these truths come to this in verses 12 through 17. We've then been liberated from a corrupt life. We used to live for the flesh. We used to live for the things of this world. Well, now we have something to live for. It's eternal. And Paul brings now the implications of this great reality for how we live. He says, if we're in the Spirit, if we're in Christ, verse 12, then we are not debtors to the flesh. You see that? So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. No longer do I want to go down that path which I now know and has been testified inside of me. That is the path of death and is worthless. I don't want to give my life and invest in that and be a debtor to that flesh. What's it going to reap? It's only going to reap death, and I know that. So we don't live that way anymore. We don't give ourselves to worthless endeavors, things that cultivate the flesh and arouse the flesh. I want to kill the flesh. Paul warns us, if we live in the flesh, we will die. This is Galatians 5.21. Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. How can, how can Paul say that? How can he be writing to Christians? I thought you're either in the spirit or in the flesh. So how can he now say, if, if you live according to flesh, you're going to die. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is how the warnings of Scripture work for us. They're actually means of grace for those who have the spirit. As Jesus says, I know my sheep. And they know me. They hear my voice and they listen. Well, the warning of Scripture, if you're a believer, you hear that and you say, I'm running. I don't want to live according to the flesh. And that warning will actually be a means of keeping you. Just like a heavenly father who warns his child, children, I do it every time I cook bagel bites in the oven. Hot, hot. And I open up that oven. Hot. Not so that they run headlong into it, so they run away. Warning them. In the same way our Heavenly Father loves us. And when we hear those who have the Spirit hear His Word, we listen and we say, Amen. I believe. I trust. But those who do not listen, no matter what their membership is and whatever they say about themselves, they show themselves not to have the Spirit who live according to the flesh. 
that characterizes their life. So Paul gives this warning to us. He moves on. Verse 14, he says, But all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And I'm confident of better things for you and me. But that describes us. That we are the ones who are led by the Spirit of God. And that testifies to our adoption as His children. What does that mean? What does that look like? What does it look like to be led by the Spirit of God? Well, it looks like having an intimate relationship with Him, is it not? It looks like having an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. And that's exactly how He describes this, isn't it? Verse 14, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, your relationship's not one based on fear. At least I hope it's not. It, it shouldn't be. You've, re you've received the, the spirit of adoption as, as a son and daughter, by which you cry a cry of endearment, Abba, Father. The cry of a child to their, to their father, and you, you run up and you, you, you hug him and you sit on their lap. Just think of all the pictures. I'm, just, I'm looking at Kelly sitting in Nick Hevener's lap. That's the picture. You've been adopted, and he, he loves you, and you're now in this relationship. It means you're close. That's what the Spirit says and has done for us, has brought us near to God. Notice that this adoption has its benefits. Verse 17, we're heirs. Notice what we're heirs of. We're heirs of God himself and fellow heirs with Christ. Do you, do you see what he's saying here? Here's your inheritance. When you adopt, the most precious gift that you and I get as new adopted sons and daughters of God is that we got God himself. He gives us, gives us himself. Maybe you say, well, that sounds boring. That's because you don't know your heavenly father. Who knows how to give you good gifts? This is the heavenly father by whom we'll say to you on that last day, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Our joy is going to be in his presence. And we get a glimpse of that joy as we, as we saw from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the, the glory of God. How is it that you and I can eat and drink to the glory of God? Because every good thing in this earth has come from our Father in heaven. And it is just a signpost. It is just a, a glimmer, a mirror of the good things that come from him. So that cold drink of water on a hot summer day that just feels so refreshing, you've got a taste of what it's like to be an heir of God. Or when you're so hungry and you see that luscious dish that you, you just love and you take that bite and it just melts in your mouth and you're just moaning and groaning, at least I do when I enjoy my food, you're tasting a, a glimpse of the glory of God. We're just signposts. So, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit, he says, verse 16, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There is a relational experience that we have. Notice that last part of the verse, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Even through 
the struggles of being in the flesh, which the body is dead, in a world that is corrupt and is falling apart. We're going to see more about this next, next week. But just look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, which is God himself, which changes everything. So how do we live according to the Spirit? In conclusion, we have to cultivate our relationship with Christ because now we have a new mindset. We love Him. We've been liberated from a, a corrupt body. We know the promises of resurrection and, and we want to know more about that glorious inheritance of the saints. We've been liberated by these truths from a corrupt life which now we have purpose. Well, what does that purpose look like? You, how do you really specifically, how, how then do you get victory over your sin? How do you, verse 13, put to death the deeds of the body and live? How do you not be a debtor to the flesh? Very simply, living according to the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, is devoting yourself to the Word of God. Remember what Jesus said to the tempter? the wilderness man does not live by bread alone but every every word that proceeds from the mouth of God you want to live you want to be led by the spirit you know who led Jesus into the wilderness the spirit and how did Jesus respond with the word because he was feasting on it you want to grow and you want to crawl up in the lap of your heavenly father open up his word and listen to him speak to Give yourself to his word. Listen to your father tell you of all the glorious riches of your inheritance. The glorious work that he has done for you on the cross by sending his son to do what you could not do. So he may purchase you and redeem you and rescue you. You want to increase your faith? You want to increase your trust? Well, well Paul will later say in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You want to grow in your faith? You want to grow in your trust in your Savior? Well, then give yourself to the growth in His word. Parallel statement to Paul, let the Spirit uh, uh, be filled with the Spirit. It's found in Colossians 3, 16. Where he says, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. This 2018, the best thing you can do for your soul is devote yourself, commit yourself to the study and meditation of God's word. Yes, I know that means no quick fixes. But what relationship is cultivated in a moment? None. A relationship is a relationship by which you are cultivating and spending time and getting to know and letting them know you. And we do that as we open up His Word and we read and we pray it and we're communing with our Heavenly Father and the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. That's how it works. And so if you're wondering, why is it that I struggle with sin? Why is it that I let the passions of this world seem to dominate my life? Are you spending much time with your Father? Are you cultivating the affections that have been planted within you through His Holy Spirit who dwells in you? 
So here's what I want to encourage you. Do you have a Bible reading plan? I'm just giving you some examples. It doesn't have to look like this, but there's numerous plans. Just type in yearly, two-year, five-year, ten-year. I don't care. Just get in the Word plan. Begin to read. One of the things that I did when I first became a Christian, someone gave me a MacArthur study Bible. You, you can get a ESV study Bible. There's NIV study Bibles. There's lots of them. We got them pretty much all in the library. You could test them out. But I just began to read portions, and then I, I would read the, the notes. You know, it began to explain these things to me, and, and devotional thoughts would come out. One of the things our community group or some of our community group are doing is, is we've downloaded this app called Fighterverse app. You can get it for free on web or you can pay $2.99 from Apple or whatever, but it, Apple didn't make it, but you can get it through the app store. And there are verses for each week. And you can put it on your lock screen of your phone if you've got one, and the first thing you see before you go to Facebook and go to Twitter is the Word of God. Because we will give ourselves to that endless nothingness before we'll give ourselves to the eternal, blissful Word of God. And then take what you study and begin to pray it back to the Lord. Pray it throughout the day. Remind yourself and meditate on the promises of God's Word that have been given to you. And pray those things for yourself, for your family, and for others. And in so doing, I promise you, I don't know what the timeline will be, but if you commit yourself to walking in the light as He is in the light, you let the Word of, of God be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path, your life will be transformed by the Spirit. Because that's how the Spirit works. And you will find God's words to be more desirable to you than gold, even the most fine gold. And they will be sweeter to you than the honey of the honeycomb. And you will find yourself loving your Abba Father like you have never known Him before. Let's pray. Lord, we do cry out, Abba, Father. And we come to you through Jesus the Son, by the Holy Spirit, whom you have given to us. And, and Lord, I pray right now that your Spirit is testifying with the Spirit of every believer in this room that they are a child of God, that they are your children, they are heirs. And Lord, I pray that you would well up in our souls a desire, a taste, a thirst for the things of you. And that you would drive us to your word. And Lord, I pray for 2018, for every one of us. I pray for us collectively as a church, Lord, that we would grow in our depth and knowledge and wonder in the knowledge of Christ. That we may know what is the inheritance of the saints. That we, would, that we would understand and we would experience the power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. And that we may know that you are head over all things and you are head of this church. And we long for the day in which you will raise not only our lowly bodies, but you will raise this corrupt earth and you will make it a new heavens and a new earth and we will enter into the joy of our Master. And we pray these things to that end. And in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing.